Jaman, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 in Irvine. Ja. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning and welcome to the September 19th, 2012 edition of Writers on Writing on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We are broadcasting live from the University of California campus in Irvine. We're streaming on the web at KUCI.org. We are always available via podcast. More information on how to access our podcasts later on in this show. I'm your host, Marie Stone. This is Writers on Writing. We are dedicated to the art and business of books. Each and every week, Barbara and I are here with authors, poets, it's literary agents giving you the latest and most up-to-date information on the publishing world. I'm joined now by D.T. Max, and coming up in the second half hour, Eileen Ruby will be here discussing her second novel, The Salt God's Daughter. D.T. Max is a graduate of Harvard University and a staff writer for The New Yorker. His new book, Every Love Story is a Ghost Story, A Life of David Foster Wallace, came out last month. He is also the author of The Family That Couldn't Sleep, A Medical Mystery. He was on the show with me talking about that book a while back. You can find that interview up on our website. I will tell you how in a little while. He lives in New Jersey with his wife, their two young children, and a rescued beagle <laughs> who came to them named Max. D.T. Max, welcome. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So the last time we talked, we were chatting about prion diseases, and I know this biography was born out of your piece for The New Yorker that you did uh, in the aftermath of, of David Foster Wallace's suicide. Tell me about the sort of the depth of your fascination for David Foster Wallace that led you from that piece to writing his, his full biography. Um, I should mention that this is his, the first biography written about him and your first biography that you've written. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, I had short. David died in um, September of 2008, uh, and right afterward, I wrote a long 10,000-word piece for the New Yorker, and the piece was very kind of freighted towards David's end, as you would expect. I mean, it covered very, very intensively. Uh, at the end of his life, David was in many ways happier than he'd ever been, but he was unable to write the way he wanted to write, and and he was working on a book called The Pale King, which which came out, I think, last year, edited posthumously uh, by his editor. So he never really never really finished it. You know, when I was done, I mean, I'd written a story that I found incredibly upsetting and, and moving about, you know, a writer who was blocked, basically. Uh, but I also felt like there was this whole other David Foster Wallace who I'd never... I just didn't have the space or the or the balance of the moment to kind of look at David as, say, a, a young man or, you know, I mean, what kind of a, David was a genius. I mean, he was a brilliant polymath. He was a, he was somebody who could master material faster than anyone I've, I've ever known personally. And, you know, he was also an emotional, an emotional turmoil much of his life. But that doesn't mean he was always unhappy. And I really wanted to write, you know, a lot of people would come to me and, and particularly his friends and say, I remember David is much happier and funnier than, than the David you wrote about. So I, I felt like that was, there was just this piece of him I hadn't gotten to. And then and the other thing is, is you know, when you write a magazine article, even a long one, it's, it's kind of like when you date someone and you know you're going to break up with them. You know, it's <laughs> like you can have sort of sweet moments, but you know that you're going to be leaving town soon. And when I left town, 
leaving David behind, I missed him, and I, I particularly missed his writing. I missed his way of seeing the world, those sort of massive, massive long sentences that David Foster Wallace specialized in, and that, that kind of omnivorous, that, that, that huge appetite for the world. Um, and I would go around and I would see things the way David saw them, and I thought, you know, I, I just don't want to leave him, I don't want to leave him behind. I mean, sad as his story is, I want, I want to go back to it. That's an interesting point you made earlier about he was happiest when he was blocked creatively. And, you know, you can't think about a lot of the artists, that, the great artists that we've uh, encountered that haven't suffered from depression, anxiety, addiction, and, and how the, that so often goes hand in hand with the creative personality. You said at one point that his, you know, that's the, the burden of having a Ferrari of the mind, that it just moves so fast that... You know, it's a burden and a blessing at the same time. But those things so often seem to go together. I think that's true. You know, what's funny about David is that um, although he was brilliant, he was also sort of massively underconfident. And so a lot of what I sort of discovered is I was working on the book. And a lot of letters, people would give me letters that he had written to them. And, and you know, I must have had a couple hundred letters by the end. And it was an incredible trove. And just a way, a real insight into, into David's mind. And one thing that struck me again and again was just how anxious he was all the time about his writing. There's a group of letters that um, that somebody gave me that in which he talks about feeling basically blocked. You know, this is long before The Pale King. Blocked and nervous about everything he's written ever since he published The Broom of the System. The Broom of the System was David's first novel. It came out in 1987 and it was, he'd written it in college. Uh, and it was kind of this masterful, comic, hilarious, loose-boned extravaganza in the Pinchonian mode. So when he, you know, so that's a long time to be just upset every minute of every waking day about whether you can do it again. And he came to personify or to, or to sort of uh, objectify his anxiety in the form of what he called the statue. This is something that I did not know when I wrote the New Yorker piece, but found out as I was researching every love story as a ghost story. And the statue was for him his own his own sort of belief that he had to do better than he'd done. That if he ever wrote a bad sentence or a bad story, like it would all come crumbling down. And it was never really clear to David, and I found this really interesting, whether the statue was other people's sort of ambitions for him or whether David, they were David Foster Wallace's own ambitions for himself. He was under, you know, he was under intense internal pressure, whatever else the world might have expected from him, and the world did expect a lot. You know, he publishes Infinite Jest, his masterpiece, in 1996. I mean, it's a cult book. It was a cult book when it was published, and it's still a cult book, and, and it must have been very, very hard for David to go from, you know, from day to day without recognizing that people were waiting for the book that surpassed Infinite Jest. Right, right. Is that what... Because you talked about the the angst that the Pale King brought him and how long he had been working on it. He'd been working on it over a decade. Um, do you think in the, the state that it was published, he would have been happy with the with the results or satisfied? You know, I don't actually, I mean, I, I don't actually know. I, I've seen a lot of the material that didn't go into the book. Uh, I had uh, um, a chance to look at the material that, that was left out. And... It's, you know, a, a novel is so complicated, and then David was so complicated on top of the novel. I, I, just, I don't really think that that book was um, the book David imagined he was going to finish. Mm -hmm. Part, most of all, he doesn't really have a plot, right. and I think David would have liked a plot. On the other hand, I think, you know, publication brings relief 
for an author. I mean, I feel this myself. You know, when it's gone, it's done. Uh, it mightn't have been the worst thing anyone could have done to David Foster Wallace if they had gone into that garage in Claremont and ripped those 800 pages out of his hands <laughs> and just printed them. Because, I mean, there are some extremely good things in that book. Um, I mean, I don't think most writers would look at it and say this is unfinished work, uh, except, you know, I mean, maybe on the level of the, of the whole thing, you know, but certainly chapter by chapter, I don't think you can make your writing much better than, than he did. I mean, the funny thing about David, you know, is, is that he was never satisfied with himself, even though one of, one of the things I felt really strongly as I, as I researched his life was that people were so in love with him. I mean, David was this, this he was the center of every room he was ever in. You know, he was, he was loved to excess, starting, I suppose, you might say, with his mother, um, to put a Freudian cast on the whole thing, as David did at one point in his in his writing about himself. I came upon this material in, in his archives where in his 30s, you know, as a kind of anxious young man, uh, he begins to cast around for the sources of his, the deep anxiety that he felt his whole life and, uh, and the deep depression that he had suffered from. And he, of course, you know, his eye comes to rest on his mother. Uh, and in the margins of one book, he writes about how, you know, she wanted him to become a performer, that it was kind of her own frustrated her own sense of being frustrated in the world that made her project all this energy um, on him. So from his mother on, there are just more and more ways in which David feels people are expecting something great from him, mm-hmm. you know, and he never feels he can quite meet that meet that need. I mean, it's it's tragic, but I wanted to say again, like, I mean, his life has so many funny moments in it. I mean, David himself loved humor. He began, you know, this is another thing that I hadn't realized until I worked on Every Love Story is a Ghost Story, I mean, he began as a, as a gag writer in college. He, he he sort of revives. He's at Amherst College, and he revives a humor magazine with a friend called Sabrina that's modeled on the Harvard Lampoon. And he wrote funny stuff. I mean, he he just loved a good gag. Infinite Jest. One of the things I think critics find so frustrating about Infinite Jest, a certain kind of critic, is it's you know there are gags in there that just really don't seem to relate to the rest of the book. Right. <laughs> I, you know, you've touched on this certainly, but for people who who have not gotten on the David Foster Wallace train, um, you, know, I think it's worthwhile talking about the massive appeal that he has. He tapped into something; people connected to something in him. Uh, as you say, he became a cult figure, certainly one of the literary giants of of this generation. Um, talk about what that what that appeal is, what it meant, how he how he got so deep in, inside of people. You know, it's, it's, it's a great question. I mean, when David, um, you know, when David died in 2008, I think he already had a cult following, but there's no question that in the, even the four years it took me to write the biography, the amount of interest in David Foster Wallace has just increased exponentially. I can remember, for instance, I was um, uh, at the uh, annual book convention in September, and uh, a bookseller came up to me, a young woman, and asked if I wanted to do a reading at her bookstore, and she showed me that she had on her on her arm tattooed the words, this is water. Mm, wow. Yeah, and this is water is the title of David's, well, the title given to David's speech at Kenyon College, mm. a very beautiful speech where, he, where he's sort of reminding undergraduates that the object of life is not to sort of amass the most houses and hotels and monopoly, but to be mindful of who you are and what your goals are. And, I mean, anytime somebody comes up to you with, with something from the author you're writing about tattooed on them, you know, you have to be, you have to recognize something new is going on. I mean, David touched people for a couple of reasons. One, um, you know, Infinite Jest, his masterpiece, is this wonderful, strange, kaleidoscopic 
view of, of the world as we live it, kind of fractured by media, fractured by uh, depression and anxiety, fractured by humor, fractured by all the kind of ways in which we're constantly trying to sell each other on things. I mean, that's not a great description of it. It's actually about some kids at a tennis academy and some other sort of a- addicts at a halfway house. But that's what it's about. But the book speaks to people. I mean, Infinite Jest and David Foster Wallace speak to people in a very direct way, almost the way, say, a J.D. Salinger once did. People who read Infinite Jest never forget that, you know, there's a writer out there who's talking to them. And I think a couple of things are happening there. For one thing, you know, David never stopped questioning his own life. One thing that every love story is a ghost story is full of is David's letters asking himself, you know, am I a good person, you know, or do I just think I'm a good person, or, or am I trying to be a good person just to pat myself on the back so I can think, oh, what a good person I am, and does that actually make me a worse person? Mm-hmm. You know, who am I really? What, what am I trying to do on this planet? So that's very, I think, moving to all of us. It was certainly very moving to me. But the other really amazing thing is that David somehow projects that he cares about us uh, and how we live. You know, that, I mean, when you read his books, Infinite Chess, but also, um, you know, the, the speech, This Is Water, or um, you just learn about David from the Internet because David is really an Internet phenomenon. I mean, David Foster Wallace has blossomed mm-hmm. on the Internet, mm-hmm. really gone, gone viral. Um, you know, what you find is that there's somebody out there who actually cares about you. You know, he cares about whether you read his book for the right reason. He cares about whether you get in your car and drive to work for the right reason. He cares whether your eyes are wide open to the world. He becomes a kind of secular preacher, and especially for readers in their 20s and 30s, um, he has just hit an incredible nerve. I mean, not just for those people, but they were the first. I mean, you have to admit, it was a sort of young man with the backpack and one book in it going off to, you know, take a year off from college in Tibet, who was sort of the original David Foster Wallace reader, right. you know, the one the one who wouldn't let Infinite Jest disappear the way most new books disappear. But by I mean by now, it's just I mean it's just David is just everywhere, and, and I think he's of equal interest to men and to women. Um, in fact, more of the tattoos that I've seen have been on women um, than they have been on men. I mean, he's wonderfully he's wonderfully modern in the sense that nobody. I, I was at a, a, a reception the other day, and you know, a twenty-five-year-old came up to me and assured me that David had been just a few years older than he was. I mean, <laughs> David is not. David actually was, was would be fifty this year, but he had this incredible ability to, to, to. You know, I really felt this strongly in working on the book. You know, that he was he was speaking to me. I mean, that's really where where the energy to keep working on the book came from. You know, I'm not. I'm talking about what how he affects other people, but this is how he affected me. I would. I would open up a letter of his and just be stunned by the extent to which he was examining things that I worried I was just, you know, sort of kicking under the rug. You know, and again and again, I I was trying to find, you know, David's great effort was his search for faith, you know, and for me, David Foster Wallace was was kind of my substitute or my Virgil in my search for, you know, explanations for why we do what we do, why I behave the way I behave, you know, am I a good person, am I just trying to be a good person? You know, questions you don't routinely ask. Uh, when you write a biography. Right, right. My guest this morning is D.T. Max. The book is Every Story, Every Love Story is a Ghost Story, A Life of David Foster Wallace. Um, You know, as biographer, he's such a bundle of contradictions. He's this exhibitionist who's intensely private. He kind of, you know, wants to crawl inside people's minds, but he has some sort of fear of intimacy. I thought his relationships with women were incredibly telling and interesting you know, he's got kind of these two, as you described, he has these two mental lives and then writes about a, th- a third mental life. 
Um, I, I, I'm wondering if that's good fodder for a biographer or if that just makes your job intensely difficult. I can't imagine a subject perhaps more complicated or, you know, difficult to write about than David Foster Wallace and, and to sum this person up in, you know, 300 pages or whatever. Um, what a task. So I, I'm wondering if all of those contradictions served you well or if they were really difficult to sort of work around. You know, I think in the end the reader probably is a better judge of of that than me. I can tell you what I experienced and felt as I was working on the book. Um, you know, my favorite quote from David about sort of self-revelation comes from an interview that he gave uh, in 1991 um, for the Review of Contemporary Fiction. And in that interview he says, uh, I'm an exhibitionist who wants to hide, but is unsuccessful at hiding. Therefore, somehow I succeed. <laughs> and the part I love most about that is he cut the comment before the interview appeared. So he was clearly an exhibitionist who wanted to hide as much as he wanted to be unsuccessful at hiding. That kind of meta thing, I mean, that's, that's the land of David Foster Wallace, the world of, of, of meta complications. For a biographer, you know, well, one, as you pointed out in the introduction, this is my first biography, so if there's, you know, if it would be easier to write about Robert Frost, um, you know, or Toni Morrison or Plautus, I don't know it yet. Right, um, right. My, you know, my suspicion is that, for me, with the kind of mind I have, you know, David was the perfect subject. He was utterly absorbing. Uh, you know, David Foster Wallace never bored me for a minute. His writing never grew stale. The big test for me, I remember telling my wife this when I, started the biography was would I want to have read Infinite Chest a third time you know that's a that's a steep <laughs> you know Infinite Chest is 1100 pages and there's a wonderful letter that I've found that's in Every Love Story is a Ghost Story where David tells his editor Michael Peach at Little Brown that he thinks he may have an arrogance problem because he had always expected that people would have to read parts of Infinite Chest twice to get it you know well, so I think that he did have an arrogance problem, but that I was the I was the right guy for for his challenge because I mean I could read Infinite Chest a fourth time quite happily. Right. You know, it's just a book with with so much in it. So I'm not sure everyone would have wanted to go on this journey. But I'm also you know as a writer, I, I mean David and I faced the same. We're nearly contemporaries, and one of the things I found so rewarding about working on Every Love Story uh, is that you know in some ways David and I acknowledged a similar challenge in the world and that challenge is how do you take the immense complexity the sort of vast you know overarching endlessly receding multiplicity of facts in our world and make something you know something understandable out of out of them you mm -hmm. know i mean when you really look at the world in any one given second you really would just throw up your hand and say it's impossible to write about this i mean you know you can't even write about a given second let alone a life you know let alone i mean with david's David's efforts, he did a lot of journalism, and he would go to these places like he once went to the Adult Pornography Awards, the Adult Video Awards, and tried to write about it. And wrote a friend afterward that writing about real life was hard because there's so much, and he bolded so much. Um, you know, but so we both faced that challenge, but I, you know, there's a number of ways you can face the challenge of how overwhelming the world is. Uh, and as you point out, my biography is actually quite short by the standards of biography, which a lot of people find funny because David Foster Wallace's books are quite long mm -hmm. by the standards of novels. And people ask, well, was this, you know, was this deliberate on your part? And, you know, the answer is I always thought of the book as short because I'm, I'm somebody who likes to, you know, I'm somebody who likes to pare down, to look for the essence. Uh, and I thought that if I was going to do a proper tribute to David, I could do it, you know, at that length. I didn't, I didn't want to write a book where you know what David has for breakfast every year. You know, it just didn't, 
it, it seemed to me David was all about what matters, and if I was, so I wanted to try and get at what, what matters. So in David's case, what matters is you know his emotional life, his 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 um, I would call it his religious life, but it's really his search for faith, um, his as you point out frequently disastrous relationships with other people, which are born out of an endless need to be close to other people, and also sort of a deep fear of getting too close to them. Mm-hmm. You know this need of the exhibitionist to hide. And then finally, just the ordinary details of life. One of the huge, you know, I remember when I when I said, okay, I'll do every love story as a ghost story, I said to my um, editor that one of the great opportunities I saw here was that David belongs to a generation that has not yet been the subject of biography. Mm-hmm. So that, for instance, you know, and then if I were writing about another sort of great New York writers of the 1950s, you know, there we'd be at another Brooklyn Dodgers game, right? I mean, we've, we've you know, we've read that so many times, you know. That the sort of crucible where those writers came from, Brooklyn in the 50s, for one example, you know, if you would take a certain group of, of writers. Um, but David lives a life that nobody's ever biographized. He's a product of the Midwest. He's born in Illinois. He returns to Illinois to teach. He's, he's in love with rock music at different stages. He's interested in, you know, Nick Drake. He's interested in Alanis Morissette. He's interested in Enya. <laughs> <laughs> odd mixtures, you know, but they're meaningful, and I wanted to draw their meaning out for readers. And then, you know, he's also interested, let us say, obsessed, and he would say totally addicted to television. So there's a challenge, you know, what was David getting out of television? I mean, I find that the great question of Every Love Story is a Ghost Story, and for me, one of the other meanings of the title is, you know, Every Love Story is a Ghost Story is really about his endless pursuit of love through television. He would, when he was having a breakdown, and David Foster Wallace had a bunch of them, he would literally be sort of attached, you know, not literally, but be almost literally attached to the television. Like, that was his hold on reality, mm-hmm. watching other people relate to each other. I just find that so, you know, so touching and so so difficult to capture, you know, without, without getting it wrong. Just a challenge for a biographer. Right, right. I guess the tale of that question is the balance of voice and how much you interject yourself, your own voice, your own conclusions about the information um, that you ga- garnered into the work, and how or how much to stay out of it and allow the you know David's voice yeah, as much as it could to kind of come through his story to come through and and sort of just striking that that delicate balance that I thought you did so well. Oh, thanks. You know, I, I take it. I I always think of this in terms of birth order. I mean. I'm the youngest of three boys in a house that was very verbal. I never got a word in edgewise. Um, that's one reason I became a writer. And so it was very comfortable for me to let David, you know, obviously I'm in there shaping, um, but it was very comfortable for me to get out of the way and let David, who was an older child of two sibling households, you know, do his thing and be David. Like, you know, that's the role of the younger child in a lot of ways is to sit there watching and taking notes. And so... For me, there was never a moment where I thought I would compete with David's voice. You know, it was too admiring of it, for one thing. Um, And also, you know, I have a voice as a writer, and that voice seemed to me to fit nicely, you know, um, by staying away from David's voice. Hmm. Uh, That's one reason I loved, you know, all these letters I had for every love story. The ghost story were uh, such a boon because, you know, I mean, David had many voices, as you sort of suggested earlier. There wasn't one David. I mean, the David of the published fiction and the nonfiction, but the David of the letters is quite remarkable. I mean, I loved, I loved his letters. I loved all the, uh, you know, all the confessions in his letters that, that, you know, nobody had ever, had ever seen before. I just thought that was such a, such a boon to the reader, you know, just to be, to be, I mean, the letters are always so true, even when they're inaccurate, and David certainly had no great belief in, um, you know, the necessity to tell the truth in his letters to his friends. But even when they're in, inaccurate, I mean, I just think, 
they're just so so alive. You know, here's one he wrote. He had just attempted to commit suicide in in um, October of 1988, and believe it or not, he writes to his agent from the intensive care ward. I mean, that alone is so extraordinary. By now, I expect maybe you've heard, I finally did something stupid last Wednesday simply because it hurt so bad. A lot of the trouble has to do with writing, but none of it with having stuff to send you or publications or careers, nothing to do really with anything exterior to me. I mean, I just think that's mm-hmm. an extraordinary thing, that the cadence of that, having stuff to send you or publications or careers, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, he was always just such a extraordinarily gifted, I mean, even in that moment, you know, ad extremis, you know, to do something stupid that such a David Foster Wallace, you know, admits all this grief and the sadness of that moment, you know. And I think he was aware of the sadness, and the sadness would have, his parents would have felt in his family, um, you know, to be still thinking and writing in that way. I mean, that, that to me is really stunning. You know, it's just, it's just incredibly sad, incredibly touching, um, and utterly stunning to have that kind of faith that words can save us. Right, right. We should we should make a note on the title. So this title of Every Love Story is a Ghost Story, apparently that was a recurring phrase that came up in a, a lot of his writings, both published and unpublished. Yeah, that's right. And also what's interesting, I, I found this out recently, is he pulled it out of a letter that Christina Stead, the wonderful Australian novelist, wrote in 1974. Um, and it's actually a letter where she's referring to two things. One, I think, the loss of her husband, uh, where she said, you know, where she's, giving us the most obvious meaning of every love story is a ghost story, right? You know, you love someone and then they're gone. So um, anytime you start to love somebody, you know, you're really, you know, that's going to be the end. Right. And two, apparently she was messing around with some fiction that had that as a, a theme or a subject, stuff that was never published. You know, for me, what, it, it adds another mystery to the mystery. I don't know why. David was not particularly a Christina Stead reader. Mm. Uh, I don't didn't even know that he'd ever read her until John Franzen, his friend, and kind of... Um, competitor uh, turned him on to Stead later later in life. Uh, I mean, John Franzen has made the man who loved children kind of a cause, mm-hmm. um, and rightly, I think rightly so. Mm-hmm. That's, that's Christina says novel. So, um, you know, it's something that flits around in David Foster Wallace's mind for years, and of course, I wanted to know what does he, what does he make of it? It's, it's, you know, it's different in tone, as anyone who knows David's writing will recognize, from the kinds of things that usually grabbed him. I mean, David Foster Wallace was in love with Thomas Pynchon, he was in love with um, Don DeLillo, you know, this is a little bit different, it's a different key, and, and he first discovered this bit of this phrase in graduate school when one could argue that David really didn't have much of an experience with loss. Right, right. Uh, and so I just want to say like this, you know, I'm always interested in, in, especially in sort of young men and young women and what, what captures their attention, much as I'm interested in my own, my own time when I was that age. Uh, you know, as a college student. And so, you know, that this s- s- sort of sparkling graduate student should have lo- sort of latched onto that phrase is really, you know, it also, of course, as you probably can guess, is a kind of a gloss uh, on biography, right? I mean, you know, every love story is a ghost story. You fall, I fall in love with David Foster Wallace and I pursue a ghost. Right. And I think that's true for more biographers than not. I mean, I think most biographers on some level love their subjects or, or why give so much time over to them. Right, right. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm recovering from illness here. Um, and he, you had also said that he didn't go to see a Gwyneth Paltrow movie because she said she, she looked like the ghost of a horse. Yes, yes. That's, <laughs> a, that's something he wrote in a letter that I, um, that I just funny. thought was so funny. I mean, David had wonderful <laughs> phrases like that. You know, he could, he could just 
get a zinger out that I mean I, I can't look at Gwyneth Paltrow anymore right movies about <laughs> thinking that she does look like a ghost of a horse he goes you know in that letter there's a little bit more of a point he makes in, in that actual letter which is that you know David's great issue as he grew older and it connects to, to, to you know to his own worries about himself as you'll see was that there are too many people who were celebrated who never actually achieved anything and mm-hmm. he very much felt you know David Foster Wallace very much felt that Gwyneth Paltrow David David loved movies. He felt very much that she had never done anything special, that she had been one of these people the culture had sort of lifted up for its own kind of marketing purposes. You know, fair or not, you can see what he's saying. You know, Gwyneth Paltrow never really had an apprenticeship. She was celebrated before maybe there was much to celebrate. And, you know, he had become, it's funny for this, this young man who had become a star at the age of 23 or 24, um, actually at 26, 27, you know, to be objecting to another young phenom is, you know, is, is a little bit counterintuitive. But that was David. I mean, as he got older, he specialized in these letters, which a lot, a lot of people very generously would give me the letters that he'd written. Read, you know, I would put out a sort of call for letters on the Internet, and people he'd written to just once would, you know, they'd give me his letters, you know, to, or more likely a letter, or often they wrote to David, you know, because David Foster Wallace's style is so strong, a lot of young writers come under his kind of influence. So these, these writers would write to David Foster Wallace in sort of imitation David Foster Wallace ease without ever really realizing that's what they were doing. And of course, Wallace would see this and immediately understand what was happening, <laughs> you know, and not like it. Right. But he also had a very mediated sense of self, so he would write back and he would again and again lecture them that it was that their, their problem was just that they wanted to be a writer or to be known as a writer, and the real job of being a writer was writing. Um, you know, in a way, an obvious enough point that it wasn't publication or the things that come with publication it was the actual sort of as he would say unsexy work um of putting words down on a page you know day after day that's the real work um the real work of the writer and so you know then these these young men or women would i guess you know scratch their heads and not you know i mean i don't know (laughs) if they then abandon their hopes of having an early success like david because you know, it, it tends to be the people who have these success who are able to then, you know, they have enough time in their lives to then decide that early success is a terrible thing. Right, right. Um, you know, but I think, I mean, he, you know, there's a reason, I mean, David, there's a reason David captured, has captured a generation or two, and I think one thing is that absolute steadfast belief, which must be hitting us in just the right place, that you can't fake it. You know, that's David Foster Wallace's great point. If you fake it, you can, you can fool other people, but you'll never fool yourself. And in a way, that's, that really is Wallace's story, right, is, is that, um, you know, in his early years, he fakes it. This is his belief. I, I happen to think The Broom of the System, his novel that he wrote in college, is, is terrific. Mm-hmm. But later, David Foster Wallace writes to John Franzen and describes it as, as the work of a very smart 14-year-old. Wow. I wish I'd been that fortunate. Yeah, I mean, right. you know, <laughs> uh, but I get the point. You know, it doesn't really doesn't really redeem you the way infinite infinite chess tries to redeem you as a person. It's just there for your amusement. Um, but anyway, and so you know, at some point, David has a breakdown. He's in his in his late twenties. I mean, one of a number of breakdowns, and stops getting high all the time. Which is basically I mean, basically David was a pot addict, and anyone who reads *Boom of the System* could have, you know can guess that it's sort of the great pot smokers novel of the eighties. Right. Um, maybe the last great pot smokers novel, <laughs> um, and so uh, he. Um, but then he gets straight, you know, and he goes into a twelve-step program, and the twelve-step program, you know, those twelve-step programs are all about personal responsibility, you know, and not blaming others, uh, and not trying to do too much too fast, 
and that becomes David. You know, it's a, it's a really amazing combination because, as I was saying, he has this Ferrari of an engine, but when David Foster Wallace enters a 12-step program, like, it's all about being in second gear because, you know, fifth gear is lethal. Right. I mean, I don't know, do Ferraris have more than five gears? I think they do, don't they? Yeah, probably. <laughs> so seventh gear would be fatal. Fifth gear is dangerous, you know. And mm-hmm. so you get this wonderful, wonderful person, the person I think we've all adopted who's, you know, who's both outsized and 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 kind of with his feet bound, you know. So he's, I mean, if he had just been a genius who made you feel crummy when he was in the room with you, which is how David saw himself as a young man, you wouldn't really want to know about him, you know. I mean, he'd just be another, another, you know, another person who just made you feel smaller. But the David Foster Wallace who grows into maturity is wonderfully a person, you know, who makes you feel more capable, more, more more not only more in control, important but more but needing to be more important for your own needs in other words he empower you know he empowers you to be a person for yourself not for him you know right. and not for god and not for you know the college that you attend or the job that you do but really in the deepest sense you know he empowers you to be more of a person for you for yourself yeah. for yourself for for all the things that you're going to have to do on this life you know in this life you're not david foster wallace but it no longer is the point I think what he would say, you know, when I was young, the point was you weren't David Foster Wallace, so you didn't matter, you know. And later in life, his point is you aren't David Foster Wallace, so you matter more. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a beautiful uh, that's a v- beautiful point to end on. Sadly, we've drawn down on our time, but uh, wow, we could we could talk about this for uh, for infinity. For <laughs> I could, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I could too. I could too. Uh, DT Max, thank you so much for taking the time this morning. This was this was fantastic. Thanks for having me on. That was DT Max. The book is Every Love Story is a Ghost Story, A Life of David Foster Wallace. You can find more about DT Max at his website, dtmax.com. We're going to take a short break, but please stay with me. Eileen Ruby will be here for the second half hour. You're listening to Writers on Writing on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We will be right back. see you go come back baby let's talk it over one more time my heart's full of sorrow mama aching tears we gone 24 hours child seem like a thousand years Come back, baby, let's talk it over one more time. Darling, one one bit in a day 
Let's talk it over Before you go away Come back, baby Let's talk it over One more time Yo, check out my DJ skills. Dad, yo, those are mad DJ skills. K-U-C-I Irvine. Bubba Bass, how low can you go? The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Welcome back to Writers on Writing on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We are broadcasting live from the University of California campus in Irvine. We're streaming on the web at KUCI.org. This show will join the other interviews up on the web and available to you via podcast. You can find us at iTunes under College Radio. You can always visit Barbara DeMarco Barrett's website, penonfire.com, for direct downloads. Information on past shows, upcoming shows, speaker series events, and more is up there. I'm your host, Marie Stone, and I'm joined now by Eileen Ruby. Eileen is the author of The Language of Trees, which debuted in 2010 and was a Target Emerging Authors pick and a first magazine for women's readers' choice, and for which the complex Chinese rights were sold. Raised in Rochester, New York, she attended the University of Southern California's professional writing program, where she was fiction editor of the Southern California Anthology. She is winner of the Edwin L. Moses Award for Fiction, chosen by T.C. Boyle, a Care Foundation Scholarship, and the Phi Beta Kappa Phi Award for Creative Fiction. Her latest novel is The Salt God. God's Daughter. It's published by Soft Skull Press, a division of CounterPoint, and it's the subject of our chat this morning. Eileen, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you for coming on. I, uh, nobody can introduce the novel as well as the author can, so I'm going to give you just a moment to talk about the subject matter, where the idea came from, and sort of your motivation to write, write it. Sure. Okay. Well, Salt God's Daughter is a story about motherhood and daughterhood across three generations, and it's really um, explores the rites of passage for women across three generations. Um, the main character, Ruthie, is sort of caught in the riptide of feminism and um, transcends tragedy with uh, grace and ultimately self-acceptance. And what I was trying to do, the book was really inspired by um, some research that I did into bullying. And one night I was in my office and I was, you know, I have a, a daughter, I have two daughters, one that is going into middle school. So I was looking into stories about bullying and girls and I found four stories of girls that had um, tragically taken their own lives because of bullying. I found four stories, then I found six, then I found eight, then I found ten, then I found seventeen in an hour. Seventeen stories of girls who had suffered, um, uh, many of whom, well, there was uh, two that were ten years old who were demonized for their sexuality, called slut. Um, And I, as I, I wrote their names out on a piece of paper, and I just, you know, it was one of those moments where I I felt such a strong, um, sense of purpose and inspiration, and I sort of made an agreement with myself to, you know, I was going to 
tell the story and try to do these girls justice and bring some awareness um, to this to this problem. And I was going to do it in the way that I can do as a fiction writer and as somebody who writes in a magical realist vernacular. Um, and so this was my way of um, bringing some light into this into this problem that continues to you know go on and plague women and girls. Wow. And it's informed by a Scottish folk song that your mom used to sing to you as a yeah. kid, right? So that's sort of the background of it. Yeah, it's a story. Um, the, the Scottish folk tale about the silky is sort of the crucible that I chose um, to tell this sort of very real modern-day story. So, um, yeah, silkies are, sh- I don't know, I'm sure you know about silkies. They're shapeshifters and they're men on land and seals in the water. And in the version that I grew up with, um, there's a woman that calls to her a man. Um, she's longing for love, and uh, the man who comes to her is a silky. And she um, has his child, he leaves, and then he eventually comes back to take the child back to the ocean. And I grew up with this myth um, in the form of a folk song that I learned to play on the guitar. And it always it always bothered me that um, the woman was longing and waiting. And so, you know, um, most novels begin with questions. Uh, and so my question was, what would happen if the power structure, the sort of old patriarchal power structure was reversed and what would happen if the woman had the power of choice in the end and so that's what I did with um, this tale and this tale Ruthie who has transcended um, so much um, hardship ultimately you know finds her voice finds her place and she ultimately has the choice in the end about whether she's going to stay with him or um, forge out on her own and make her own life. I loved sort of the interesting absence of men in here. I mean, the exception, obviously, is, is Graham in the second half. But this, yeah. you know, particularly in the, in the front half of the novel, sort of all of these women, not necessarily, you know, all likable women, but complex, yeah. strong, both weak, very flawed uh, women coming together in sort of this um, circle of, of um, <laughs> both tearing each other down, building each other up, caretakers, uh, not so great caretakers. That th- the complexity of women in this is is just lovely. Just oh, lovely. thank you. And I'm, I'm a little bit interested in your uh, mining of character and Ruthie in particular. Um, you know, all of the women in here were were really great. Tell me about if if you had particular people in mind. If you were drawing from traits kind of all over the place. If you had, you know, how how mostly Ruthie came about. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a great question. You know, I sort of grew up in a in a fatherless world, um, and I lived. You know, when I was little, I lived in an apartment complex, and it was all single single mothers, mm-hmm. single working mothers, and their kids. And we would um, that you know that was our life. It was a life of of mothers, and um, I think that absolutely informed this. Story, you know, fathers were mythic, and um, and so I kind of wanted to capture that. And I also, really, probably more than that, wanted to capture um, the fact that women, you know, wrestle with with such large questions beyond, you know, will I stay home? Will I work? Will I have children? Will I not have children? You know, these are sort of um, questions that are very commonly 
you know, um, dealt with, but I also wanted to address, you know, what is my purpose, in, you know, here, in, uh, you know, on this planet, these, these sort of bigger soul questions. That's what I really wanted to, um, you know, sort of expand the story into questions like that and, and how women can make a difference not only in their own lives but also in the world. So, you know, all of these questions from, from Ruthie to, um, you know, her, her young daughter wrestle with, you know, what is my purpose here and, and what, am I, what am I here to do, really? That's what I wanted to focus on. Um, and that, I think, just expands feminism and mysticism and uh, sort of combines those two things. So uh, that's a little bit about the direction that I was trying to, to go in. I've heard you're a big fan of Tori Amos. Oh, I love Tori Amos. If you could set a novel to yeah. music, her mu- her music really would be a good background for this novel. I think you had one of her songs in mind when you were writing this, yeah? Yeah, uh, Me and the Gun. There's um, Tori Amos. Uh, there's actually a playlist on my website that um, highlights several songs by Tori Amos and some other um, musicians that are thematically linked to the book. And Tori Amos's story and... and just the, the way that she's talked about um, rape and the way that she's given a voice to so many women who um, have been silenced, and she does it in such a beautiful, um, heartfelt way. Um, yeah, absolutely. Her, her music is just so inherent and inspired me when I was writing the novel. You know, when I wrote the very last scene, I was listening to her music in my office. And um, yeah, it was just a beautiful way to weave in um, music and literature and art and sort of all those things. I think it's always interesting. I know you're a painter as well. And the, you know, the painting, the music, uh, novels have so many strands that, you know, they have to weave together in and of themselves. And so to incorporate, I mean, I would imagine you're obviously a, either a poet yourself or a huge reader of poetry based on the way you're writing. Um, so to have sort of all of those strands in your head of the, the visual arts, the audio arts, the, you know, tactile, whatever is kind of in your hand, in your head, all of those things working together to, to create this novel, it felt like all of that got put in here. I did, yeah, absolutely. Um, two of the characters in the book are artists, and I, I grew up, uh, my mother was an artist, and um, I, I grew up in a very creative household. Art was just part of um, our lives. It was something that we we did every day. Um, there was always, you know, art projects going on, and um, I think there's so much that you can... Um, you know, art is so necessary, I think, and it's so helpful to um, children and to adults in, in terms of the way that it allows you to express yourself. Creative expression is so incredibly important. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely, that was woven. Um, there's a character that's learning to paint in the book, and, and that was woven into the story as well. It was funny. I, I was a teacher in Long Beach, California many years ago, <laughs> many, many years ago. And um, I really, uh, you know, incorporated art and writing um, into my daily lessons. And um, I just uh, I saw one of my students who was 10 when I taught him, and he's 
30 now, and we were talking about his journals and the way he learned to paint and, you know, how important that's been for him. And um, I just think it's it's something that um, it's it's not to be missed. I think it's something that's so important for people to, um, you know, try and, and undertake. Yeah, yeah. Uh, some of the nuts and, nuts and bolts of writing. The uh, the shifting first person narrative in this, I thought was was really nice. We get the t- first two parts from Ruthie's point of view, and the third part from her daughter's uh, first person point of view. Yeah. Tell me about how natural point of view, shifting voices, first person narrative was. I always find first person really hard to work with because it's too, it's so close for me that I get claustrophobic. Yeah. Um, but but tell me about that and uh, and the and the choice to to shift and you know how how nicely that was done. Oh, thanks. You know, I I this is the first book that I've written um, in the first person, and it just it was so organic. The voice came first before uh, you know the plot. It it, it you know it, in terms of the way that it came to me, it was such a strong voice that even when I tried briefly to wrestle it into the third person, it really just asserted itself, and um, it just was very important to to write it in the first person. It's such a voice-driven story, and um, it really opened things up for me. Um, I love so, it when decisions are made for you. Pardon me? <laughs> I said, I love it when writers' decisions are made for you, and you don't... Yeah. <laughs> You don't even have to worry about it because it's just going to be that way. <laughs> exactly. No matter what you do to try to wrestle it into something else, it just kind of, you know, sustains itself. Right. So there was so much energy in that in that voice. I just knew that I didn't, I, I just wanted to let it, you know, I wanted to let that energy come out and sustain itself. Um, and I knew that I just really shouldn't mess with it in a way. I just wanted to, uh-huh, uh-huh. I was so thankful that it was coming out in such a strong way that I just wanted to kind of let it, you know, to go with go it with and to it, honor, yeah. honor it when it came that way. Right, right. We should talk about second novels because I know a lot of writers, you know, the first novel is daunting. The second novel is really the tricky one. You know, it's, it's often easy to um, get a first novel published second novels it's it, that seems to be where the rubber really meets the road for writers if they're going to make it or if they aren't it depends on the publication of that second novel whether mm-hmm. they still have things to say um so talk about that what writing second novels when you came back to the page after the language of trees was done yeah. um what that process was like what the selling process was like sure well interestingly i um I had started this novel when I was on a book tour for The Language of Trees and happened to show it to a friend of mine, um, and he loved it. Um, and so we, you know, I continued to write it, and um, and then so the, the book was sold very early, um, and and so you know I just I just went ahead and wrote the book in sort of this this it was you know the language of trees took me 10 years <laughs> 10 <laughs> years to write and this book just it was uh it, it was like out, out of the gate you know i just sunk everything into it and worked you know night after night after night um and i have three little kids too so mm. It was a, you know, but this is, I just think every book has its own life and its own story, and and it, you know, part of me just growing up as an artist just, I I just had to honor the way that this book came, and um, so I never, I didn't struggle with the sophomore 
purse. I've heard somebody ask me about that recently, and I and it, I don't say that to mean, you know, to brag or anything like that. I just it, that wasn't the way that this book sort of came into the world. Had I had I thought about that though, <laughs> had I you know had I actually worried about it, and I'm such a worrier that um, you know I'm almost glad that I I didn't think about that. No kidding. Um, yeah, we don't need it, any more angst, right? <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. Uh, I will. I will pose this because this is an long-going debate in my own writing group about prologues. There's some people that are, you know, loving prologues. Some people are against them. I don't know. You know, most people say if they naturally occur in the novel, great. Just throw it in as a first chapter. Tell me your thoughts on prologues. This book obviously has one. Yeah. And uh, it gives us a little prelude into um, Ruthie's daughter's voice. Uh, early on, so tell tell me about your your prologue thoughts. Obviously, you're pro. <laughs> yeah, I am. Um, you know, it, I've been. You know, I did a writing program 20 years ago, and um, for me, just having done this for such a long time, and it took me such a long time to get my first novel published. Um, you know, many years after I wrote it, and I think when you when you're going through a writing program, and I've been in so many writers groups and taught, and you know, there's so many. You go through stages where there are so many rules, and I think you can really get yourself tied up into a little bit of a, a you know, a writer's knot. I call it right. um, about what to do and what not to do, and styles change, and then what's in vogue changes, and you know, prologues are in, they're out, they're good, they're bad. I think you really got to stay true to what's organic about your story, and you know, if the prologue feels um, organic and it works and it, um, you know, it sort of sets the stage, and this is the way that it that it comes to you, and and certainly, you know, you go through the editing, a very heavy editing process, but if it if it's seamless and if it feels organic to the story that you want to tell, then I say do it. You know, people say the same thing about first-person narratives or, you know, I mean, there's just, there's so many rules and I just think some rules are made to be broken. I love that. That is exactly right. <laughs> exactly so. right. Uh, we have drawn down on our time. Tell people where all, you have a website, iliruby.com. I'm going to yes. spell your first name so people can find you. It's I-L-I-E. R-U-B-Y, IleeRuby.com. And uh, I assume we can follow you on Facebook and and Twitter and all those fun places. Absolutely. I'm on Facebook and Twitter. And um, uh, tomorrow night I'll be reading at Skylight Books in Los Angeles. Oh, perfect. Good. Good Yeah. Excellent. What time are you there? Uh, 7.30. 7.30. Perfect. Yeah. Eileen Ruby, this was a huge pleasure. Congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. Congratulations. That was Eileen Ruby. The book is The Salt God's Daughter. You can find her again at Eileen Ruby. I-L-I-E is the first name. Ruby, R-U-B-Y dot com. That's all the time we have for today. I will be right back here with you next Wednesday morning, 9 o'clock. So until next time. Thanks so much for joining me. Stay tuned for Sister Rue coming up next on KUCI with Positive Vibrations. A little reggae to bring you into the rest of your day. Have a great day.
away 